We come now to our time of uh, looking at and then listening to the Word of God. Uh, this morning, our scripture passage, as we continue in Timothy, is 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25. Uh, the title of my message this morning is The Elders and Serving Well, Part 1. Let's hear the Word of God as we read it together. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those whose labor is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves the, his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing to impartiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let's pray. Our fathers, we come to this time of considering your word. We would pray for that measure of grace by which you enable us to understand the scriptures. But especially pray, Father, that during this great time of unrest in our country, when there are so many things that are so very, very challenging and heartbreaking, when many people are, are wondering what is ultimately going on, why are these things the way they are, uh, when we're able to see that, yes, we're a country deeply divided and we're a country of great sins, we would pray for what the power of the word is able to do with us. Uh, it doesn't give us a crystal ball to always understand exactly what's happening, Father. But your word gives us the light that we need to frame our lives in a manner that pleases you. And we would pray for that. Father, even as we consider uh, the eldership this morning in terms of what Paul says to Timothy, uh, give us the grace to understand how the truth that you speak, you speak to all the church, you speak to all of us to build us up in our holy faith. And for that, we pray, Lord, that especially in this time of great turmoil in our country, you would have us as Christians to be true salt and true light, a favorable testimony to this generation. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin this morning by stating right up front what this message is all about. It's about the responsibility of elders. And the thrust of the message can be stated this way. Because the responsibility of the elders to lead the church are eternally serious before God, the church must pray faithfully for its leaders. In thinking about the responsibilities of the elders, I want to encourage the church in its deep responsibility to pray for the elders. The responsibilities of elders are very serious. 
They shepherd the church. The church is the pillar and foundation, the pillar and the buttress of the truth. The standards for the lives of elders are serious. They're going to be judged more severely according to what James says. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a stricter judgment. Also, we're told in Scripture that elders keep watch over the souls of Christians, and they're going to have to give account for that ministry. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 and 17 speak to that. The writer says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So when this so when the church in this passage is exhorted to remember their leaders, that would certainly begin with remembering them in prayer. To pray for men to be faithful men who would do their ministry with godly integrity and who would keep watch over their souls. Or First Thessalonians chapter five, verses twelve and thirteen. Paul writes, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So elders are called to admonish, which means to instruct and teach and to warn from the word of God. And the best respect and love from the church, from the church family, is to pray. Pray for those who are elders. So once again. Uh, the main thrust of this message is this. Because the responsibilities of the elders to lead the church are eternally serious, the church must pray faithfully for its leaders. They serve before God in a serious, serious matter. The elders will always need your prayers. Now, in this passage uh, that we have before us, Paul gives Timothy a series of instructional guidelines Guidelines about the elders, guidelines that we can categorize in really six ways. First, their calling. Uh, then secondly, their honor. Thirdly, their accountability. Fourthly, their ordination. Fifthly, their welfare. And lastly, their discernment. Six categories. We're going to look at three this Sunday and then pick up with the last three, Lord willing, next Sunday. I want to approach these categories uh, pretty much with this in mind. I want to explain what it means, and then I want to see how we should pray in light of what these uh, passages, these, these particular categories would express about the elders. So it's, what does it say about the elders? What then does it say in terms of how we should be praying for them? The question, though, in terms of beginning here, has to do with, uh, the calling, the first question, the first category is the calling of the elders. Verse 17, just the first few words, the elders who rule. The calling of the elders is to rule over the church. Now, the word rule there has uh, the essential meaning in Greek that we would find in connection with kings or governors, uh, those who have earthly authority over others. Uh, the church has elders who are to rule, and that word captures and describes exactly what they're supposed to do. But then the question is, 
how is that leadership of ruling to be exercised? We know from scripture that there are worldly forms of leadership. Then there is the kind of model of leadership that Jesus gave to his disciples for the leaders of the church. He expresses this in Mark chapter 10, verses 42 to 45. I want you to think about this, perhaps as you read these verses on the screen, that what Jesus is saying is essentially this. First, he describes the nature, the very nature of the worldly Gentile rulers. They lord it over people. They impose their authority upon the people that they are over. But there's a contrast then, a contrast in what Jesus says to his leaders, to his disciples, those who are going to lead in his name. He says they're only going to be great leaders, truly great leaders, if they become the servants of all those whom they lead. The difference here can be stated very, very simply. It's the will to power versus the will to serve. The will to power, which characterizes how the rulers of this world operate, they lord it over, uh, they exercise their authority, they, they, they domineer. But then you have the contrast, the way Jesus has told his disciples to lead, a will to serve, to govern and to rule in such a way that the leader becomes a servant to all of those that he leads. That's why the NIV translation is actually very helpful here. Um, the NIV says the elders who direct the affairs of the church. So a leader can dictate or leader can direct. He can use an iron fist, <clears throat> or he can wear a velvet glove. He can lord it over others, or he can use his authority to serve by building others up. Just recently, a friend of mine shared his plans to pursue his master's degree in education so that he might go into educational administration. And so he's asking me, because I've had this background in education, he said, what do you think the main job of an administrator is? And my response was this. The main job of an administrator is to do everything he can to help his teachers become better at what they do. His job is to help them become all that they have the ability to become. His job is to serve them in order to make them better. Now, that's how we need to pray for the elders. We need to pray for elders to always serve and to rule in this manner, that they would be servant leaders. They would serve the purposes of the church. They would serve the purposes of the people of God. Because God's church is God's messenger in this world. And so the elders are to serve the people of God in such a way that the people of God will become better messengers of the truth of God. It's a calling of elders to help every believer become more of what God has purposed that believer to be. That's the calling, to build up the body of Christ, for we are the pillar and the foundation of the truth. And then thinking about this, praying for our church in its present context, praying for the future. 
praying that God would send a man, send such a man who would only have the desire and aim to be a servant leader. Now, the second category that the Apostle Paul presents to Timothy involves the, the honor of the elders. And we see this explained to us or presented to us in verses, all of verse 17 and into verse 18. So reading, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those whose labor who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Now, it's rather obvious that Paul is talking about honor in terms of high esteem for the elders. But there's more than just the high esteem. He's also referring to payment in terms of even wages or salary. Because the word honor, which in the Greek is simply timē, uh, that word has an economic meaning that includes price or proceeds or value or money, as well as honor in, in the sense of being a term of praise. So double honor, as it's expressed here, has reference to both of these ideas. Double honor is that of honor and honorarium. It's esteeming an elder highly, but also paying him wages. That is why Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 25.4, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And then from Jesus, Luke 10.7, the laborer deserves his wages. So Paul is laying out the principle that serving as an elder can entitle a man to remuneration, to be paid for his services in shepherding the church family. Now, this is particularly the case if the one who is an elder is an elder full time. Uh, Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. Paul makes the case this way. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So in putting these two passages together, 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy, uh, in our circles, which would be the Protestant and Reformed tradition, we make the distinction between paid and unpaid elders. Uh, and we do this on the basis of whether a man has been called to the gospel in a full-time calling or whether his service as an elder is in addition to his uh, other vocational calling, his livelihood. We call the paid elders, the, the teaching elders. We call the unpaid elders, the ruling elders. But both are elders. Both are shepherd teachers of the family of God, and in serving well, they deserve honor. Now, rather than going into all the ins and outs about uh, what categorizes everything with respect to elders, let's focus upon what Paul is saying to Timothy. Elders who serve well are, are worthy of honor, even double honor, when they are involved in full-time uh, laboring and teaching and preaching. This is this is a reminder of how then we should pray. We should pray that all elders would be worthy of the honor that's given to them, truly worthy of the respect and esteem 
of a congregation. And we should pray for all those who are teaching elders, who earn their living by the gospel, that, that they would be worthy of that double honor, that they would be men who would labor hard and strive for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the church, for the sake of the truth, so that they would truly be carrying out their purpose too. We, we need to pray that God would give to elders all of the faithfulness, all of the integrity to pursue their work well so that they would be worthy of the honor uh, that the church should give to them. That's how we should pray. The third point this morning has to do with their accountability. And we're going to spend more time on this because this is actually one of the most significant principles for the church. And it's also one of the most significant principles in terms of the church and its witness and its impact upon the culture in Western history. So that's a bold claim, but let me explain it. Uh, reading first, verses 19 through 21. Paul says to Timothy, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Now, Paul is saying here a number of things that we need to consider. First, with respect to the position of an elder, whether he's a teaching elder or a ruling elder, that position ought never to shield a man from criticism or accusation. Rather, the elders are to be held accountable to both the doctrinal standards of the Christian faith and the moral standards of the Christian faith. Now, listen to the historical significance of this principle of accountability. All through history, people in high positions, whether they've been political or religious, and much of the time in the ancient past, their high positions religiously were political and the high positions political or religious. But there's a constant theme all throughout history. And that is people in positions of power have been able to escape the basic demands of justice. The abuse of power is not new. All the ways in which we see this manifested within our own country, the ways are not new. It was pandemic within the Roman Empire. We see it all throughout Western European history. And it's because of a very, very simple concept Two Latin words, rex, lex. The Latin means the king is law. The will of the ruler is the law of the land. All power and authority reside in the king. This was the prevailing theory of political power in virtually all of the European monarchs. It was even given the status, supposedly biblical, of the divine rights of kings. But in 1644, exactly the same time as the Westminster uh, divines were being called together to write uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith in its documents, 
those Reformed theologians in England. Uh, up in Scotland, 1644, the Presbyterian minister Samuel Rutherford published his book entitled Lex Rex, not Rex Lex, but Lex Rex, just the opposite, meaning the law is king. His book, on biblical grounds, rejected the divine rights of kings. It rejected the principle of Rex Lex. Furthermore, Rutherford introduced into the political debates of the day the strongest defense of the rule of law, the strongest explanation of why there ought to be limited government, and why there necessarily, in order for there to be a rule of law and proper government, there needed to be constitutionalism. Now, two things to note. Rutherford drew his political ideas directly from the Reformed and Presbyterian understanding of church government. That understanding of church government came to Scotland and the British Isles about a hundred years earlier from Geneva from the ministry and teaching of John Calvin. And second, the founders of the American Republic, the founding fathers, were all subscribers to the political philosophy of Lex Rex, which is why the English Parliament accused the American Revolution of being a Presbyterian rebellion. Fully one half of all of the soldiers and officers in the colonial army were Presbyterians. And they understood that they were fighting for lex rex. They were fighting for the principles that it's the law that's to be king rather than the king who is to be law. Now, returning to the New Testament church, Christ designed the church to operate contrary to the culture, contrary to the government of the Roman Empire, contrary to the way the world governs, the opposition to the idea of Rex Lex is established by the rulers being accountable, by the rulers of the church being accountable to the law of justice and truth. Lex Rex, it is the law that is king. So it's so necessary if the church is to actually be the pillar and support the pillar and buttress of the truth, it's so necessary for the church to always operate this way because that truth it's God's truth, and that truth is God's moral law, and elders are fallible human beings. It's possible for elders to sin doctrinally. It's possible for them to sin morally. They are to be held accountable to the moral law of God. If there's an accusation, and if the accusation is true and substantiated, the elder must be properly addressed, confronted, and encouraged to repent. But as Paul tells Timothy, if he persists in his sin, he's to be rebuked publicly. It's to be made a public matter so that the rest of the church family may stand in fear. Now, the second significant thing we need to note, Paul is making it clear that in the church, as the pillar and buttress of the truth, there is a proper standard of justice and truth and a proper procedure 
for getting at the truth and justice whenever someone makes an accusation. The standard for the New Testament church is exactly the same standard that we find in Old Testament judicial cases. The law of Moses, which Paul quotes from, continues into the New Testament era, era and into the church in terms of defining justice and the proper steps of judicial process. The passage Paul primarily cites from is Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. But let me read that passage all the way to verse 21. Moses wrote, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priest and the judges who were in office in these days, those days. The judge shall inquire, the judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he is meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst and the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So what we have here is Paul cites the essential principle of two or three witnesses. The requirement of two or three independent but direct witnesses was to be the standard, the necessary standard in order to verify the truth. Uh, the standard of reliable testimony. There can be no convictions otherwise. But the process also means that the witnesses can't be secret. They can't be anonymous. In the Old Testament law, understand this, and other parts of the Old Testament law, it is specifically stated that the main victim of some kind of sin or crime, the main victim normally had to be the main prosecutor and the main witness against the accused. So the accused always had the right to face his accuser or accusers and to know all of those who accused him and who they were and what they said and when and where they supposedly witnessed his sin. It was all public. It was all necessarily transparent, and it was all to be above board in the interests of true justice. Now then, in terms of what Paul says, we note that if an elder is actually convicted of sin and he doesn't repent, but he persists in it, then he's to be rebuked in the presence of all of the church for the sake of the fear that it's going to generate in others. It must be made a public matter so that others will see, others will understand that sin within the church will truly be dealt with justly, but faithfully and truly. This also reflects how the law of Moses used public convictions as public deterrence. The law made the conviction of sin a public thing to bring about a fear that would discourage further sinning. And then Paul charges Timothy in the presence of the high court of heaven 
of God and Christ Jesus. Uh, up in heaven where the elect angels stand as auditors, he's charged to keep the rules of justice without prejudging, without any kind of partiality. And the principle there is we've encoded it in our law. The accused is to be held and treated as innocent until properly proven guilty. And Paul gives this to Timothy because the church, the pillar and buttress of the truth, is under the authority of heaven and must act with truth and justice, especially in matters that would convict someone of sin and also to protect someone's reputation, especially as this pertains to the eldership. So that must that means that the standard of truth must always be observed. No unconfirmed rulers, excuse me, no unconfirmed rumors, no slanders ought ever to be allowed against any elder. Any criticism or accusation or charge against an elder must be dealt with in accordance with biblical judicial processes and principles that are intended to lead to the truth. Now stop and reflect upon this a moment. Do you understand what's wrong with our country? Do you see how sadly the standard of justice has been lost within our American culture? A counterfeit narrative of justice has actually been put into place. A counterfeit narrative where people can be accused, people can be tried in the court of public opinion, and receive no authentic biblical justice, even constitutional justice at all. We have overridden the truth of a biblical understanding of justice with some new form of justice that winds up being no justice at all. And that means the church, as the pillar and buttress of the truth, must evermore be in prayer and must evermore be teaching what truly makes for a just society by holding to true, true justice inside the church itself. Because if we fail to have true justice inside the church, we will miserably fail in our calling to be salt and light to the world. Now then a third thing. The biblical matter of handling sin or the suspicion of sin within the church in regards to the elders is just really a way of saying that the principles of justice apply to all of the people of God. For Jesus had already taught these principles of justice to his disciples for the sake of the church. We see this in Matthew 18, verses 15, 16, and 17. Jesus taught this way. He said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Now, what Jesus taught is that 
there is one standard of justice for all, and all are to receive that kind of justice, which means we are ourselves sinning if we fail to follow his teachings about how to deal with sin and grievances and those such, such things. But how little we know and understand this in the church and how little we know and have practiced this within the church, a true standard of justice, uh, has been impressed upon me more than once. I think about one time, fairly early on in my pastoring career, uh, a young man in the church who was a Christian school teacher came to me with respect to uh, another member of the church. She also was a Christian school teacher. And what he shared with me was that uh, her conduct was getting way too familiar with a couple of the older male teenage uh, students in the Christian high school. Uh, he said, this has crossed the line into being flirty, at least from his perspective. So he told me this and I asked him, I said, well, what did she say when you brought this to her attention? And his response, I haven't spoken to her about it at all. I thought you should speak to her. So I had the opportunity to lay out Matthew chapter 18 with him. And I said to him, it would be positively sinful for me to go to her. It would be a sinful act for me to act upon hearsay, something that you have presented to me, which I then could say, well, it's almost like a rumor. It's almost like gossip. It would be positively sinful for me to go to her based upon what you have said, when in fact, according to scripture, it is morally necessary for you, the one who has witnessed this, to speak to her about her behavior. You see, and you see it all throughout social media, there is a sinful delight and what our parents said was nothing other than tattling on others. It is so easy to do this on social media. It is so easy to gossip, to spread rumors, to slam people, to accuse, to condemn, and to do it anonymously. And in every one of those ways, we have perverted the cause of justice. We have destroyed the foundations of truth. But it takes godliness and it takes courage to do what is right according to true justice. Now, how then should we pray? First, a praise to God. A praise that Christ has made the rulers of the church subject to and accountable to the moral law of God. Uh, elders are accountable. Therefore, elders can be properly accused. Elders can be properly brought to bear uh, when their behavior doctrinally or morally is out of line. There is accountability. Praise God that he has established this within his church. It's such a good thing. And then secondly, elders need to be prayed for because they are accountable. Pray that God would keep them from doctrinal sin. Pray that God would keep them from, from moral sin but also pray that God would keep them from false accusations. And then thirdly, pray for all of us to hold fast in our Christian lives to this principle of lex rex, 
The moral law of God is under Christ our King, guiding us, guarding us at all times. To truly live under the law, under the authority of Christ, who really is our law now, for it is his law and in his law that we always find the true expression of love. We stop here. We'll continue again next Sunday. But let me state again the main thrust of this passage, because the responsibilities of the elders to lead the church are eternally serious before God. The church must pray faithfully for its leaders. Amen. Our God and Father, we thank you for scripture. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your law. And we thank you that you place your law within our hearts. And that law resonates with the voice of Christ. Uh, to love others as we would love ourselves, to love you supremely, and therefore to always be living in accordance with principles of true justice and truth. We pray for this. You have called the church to be the pillar and support, the pillar and the buttress of the truth in this world. Lord, we lose our message. We lose our, our qualification to be messengers of the truth if we do not live in accordance with truth which is found in your justice, which is found in your word. Ever keep us faithful, Lord, and ever keep us faithfully praying for those who are our leaders to be men of God, faithful to your word, shepherding your people, serving all that they may become all that you want them to be. In Jesus' name, amen.